Hello, and welcome back to Latin class from the Church of St. Agnes. This is Professor Jim May, and today we'll be beginning our Latin 3 class, starting with Unit 24 in the John F. Collins book, A Primer of Ecclesiastical Latin. This uh, unit starts on page 203. I'm hoping that you all had a blessed and wonderful Lent and Easter, and that time off from Latin afforded you the opportunity to review your Latin, catch up, uh, practice, and that you're ready to plunge forward. We will continue with, in Latin 3 uh, until we finish all of the units covering grammar in the Collins book. So without further ado, let's get right to it and uh, take a look at Unit 24, beginning on page 203. Now, as usual, especially in these latter chapters, Collins has included a potpourri of materials, some more important and more difficult than others. I don't always see his logic in the way he combines and uh, includes things in every unit, but uh, this is the book we're using, so we will follow his lead. So first of all, he presents you with the present subjunctives of two irregular verbs, eo and volo. And these are quite simple. They are irregular in the sense that they're not formed by our regular formula of we hear a liar friar. Uh, and they are very important verbs. As you know, uh, eo, to go, has many, many compounds. And uh, volo uh, is an important word, meaning to wish and so forth. So uh, it's good that you uh, commit these to memory, these forms. You can see them there. Uh, the present subjunctive of eo, eam, eos, eot, eamos, eatis, eont. And the present subjunctive of uh, volo, uh, velim, velis, velit, velimos, velitis, veliant. Uh, I will remind you that you can find the full conjugation of these and other irregular verbs back in the morphology section. So for eo, go to page 398, and for volo, go to page 401, and you can see there the entire conjugation of the verbs. So we won't spend any more time on those. Just be aware and be ready to uh, recognize them when they appear in your readings. Um, the next point of grammar that Collins introduces is the uh, intensive pronoun or adjective. It actually functions as both. The word ipse. And again, this is not a very difficult word. It's not a very difficult concept. Uh, it is an important word because it's what we call an intensifier. It's an intensive pronoun or adjective. And by that, we, I mean that it, it emphasizes or intensifies the thing it modifies or stands for. So in English, we usually do this by um, adding to our phrase uh, himself, herself, itself. He himself did this. Jesus himself said this to the apostles. In other words, that very Jesus, that one, that very important guy, we want to intensify that. Now, this word can stand as an adjective, intensifying whatever it modifies, 
or it can stand by itself just as a pronoun. So it could be the subject, for instance, ipse, and then we would translate he himself, that very fellow. If it was ipsa, it would be she herself, that very woman, that very feminine uh, object, whatever it was modifying or referring to, or ipsum, the neuter, that thing itself. So there you see the conjugate or the declension, and you will notice that it basically uh, follows the uh, declension of the word ille, illa, illud. Um, we have ipsum instead of ipsud, but otherwise we have that strange genitive ipsius, 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 and the dative ipsi, ipsi, ipsi in the singular. The plural is perfectly normal. Remember, we like to learn these going across. So it's ipse, ipsa, ipsum, ipsius, 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 ipsi, 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 ipsum, ipsam, ipsum, maze law number one, nominative and accusative neuters are the same, ipso, ipsa, ipso, with the long marks, and then the plural accordingly. Um, you can see examples on page 204 of how this is used, and um, I think it'll be quite clear to you. Uh, ego, ipse, hoc, feci. I myself, I that very one, I that intensified ego, I did this, okay? Puer ipse hoc fece, the boy himself did this. Um, in other words, the boy, that very boy did it. Ipsa hoc fece, she herself, there we have the feminine in the nominative, so we know the subject is a, a female, she herself did this. Jesus sanavit mulieres ipsas. Jesus healed the women themselves. Yes, in ipsum credimus. We believe in him, meaning him, that very one, that emphasized one. So, uh, that word is an important word. You'll see it a lot in Latin. Just be aware of it. Um, and there's another way to intensify a pronoun, which uh, Collins points out there in the middle of uh, page 204 by attaching the suffix met, M-E-T, on the end of a pronoun. Ego met Romam Ebo. I myself, I, that very one, will go to Rome. And um, we see this in all kinds of forms. If you notice, even in the bottom there, a little further down, in the Nova Vulgata, and the New Vulgate, Ipsa, Ipsa, Ipsum is treated as a suffix after personal programs, Te ipsum, in other words, it attaches, right? You yourself, vos met ipsos. That's a very emphatic one because you have vos, and then you have met, and then you have ipsos on top of it. So you will see those, uh, not that often, but they will occur. So those are simple uh, beginning pieces of grammar that Collins introduces in this unit. Now we come to a more uh, important uh, and more crucial one, and that is in section 128, conditional clauses, and what he calls the present contrafactual. Now let's talk a bit and remind ourselves, review a bit about conditions. Remember, a condition is an if-then statement. We call the if clause, formally in grammar, the protasis. We call the conclusion clause or the then clause, the apodosis. Those are fancy grammatical names. You don't have to remember them. You don't have to use them but you will see them referred to as such in various grammar books and so forth. So we have an if-then clause. <clears throat> the conclusion clause is always the main sentence of a condition. 
Now, we've encountered conditions. Latin has several categories of conditions. The first and most basic are the simple uh, conditions in present and past. And those just use uh, the present or past indicatives as verbs in each clause. Um, if uh, Joe went to the store, he saw uh, his mother working or something like that. That's just a, a straight factual condition. Then remember, we learned several future conditions. And there's the future more vivid, which is uh, the using in, in Latin the future indicative in both clauses or the future perfect indicative in the protasis and uh, the future in the apodosis. So if, uh, if you will study your Latin, you will get an A on the test. If Mary will have studied her Latin, she will get an A on the test tomorrow. These are in future time. Then we had also the future less vivid, you might recall. I hope you recall that one. And the formula for that condition was two present subjunctives, one in each clause, and we call this the should-would condition. If Mary should study her Latin, she would get an A on her exam. The should-would condition, two present subjunctives. The third and final category of Latin conditions, and I should say that there are such things as mixed conditions, we won't get into those now, but the third category, very important category, is what I like to call the contrary-to-fact condition. Uh, Collins calls them contrafactual, same thing, contrary-to-fact, contrafactual. And these are the conditions that are, in fact, contrary-to-fact. So think about it. In English, our one, one of our very few uses of the subjunctive in English is reserved for this kind of condition. For example, I used to say to my kids all the time, if I were you, I'd spend a little extra time studying this point for the exam when I was helping them with their homework. If I were you, but I'm not. That's why it's contrary to fact. Um, we see, if you remember that formula, if I were you, notice I were. That's one of the few places in English we actually use the old subjunctive in English. Latin will handle contrary to fact conditions in the following way. There are two contrary to fact conditions. Contrary to fact present condition, contrary to fact past time condition. In this unit, Collins only shows you the present contrary to fact condition or contrafactual condition. That's because he hasn't taught you all the forms of the subjunctive yet. He will do so in the subsequent chapter. But remember, if you've been doing your class uh, with us the last several months, you have, in fact, learned all the forms of the subjunctive. So in the present contrary to fact condi condition, Latin uses an imperfect subjunctive in each clause. So take a look at uh, the example on page 205 at the top of the page. Si Paulus eset hic felices esemus. If Paul eset, present subjunctive, I'm sorry, perfect subjunctive of the verb to be essay. 
if Paul were here, felices essemus, we would be happy. Okay? If Paul were here, but he's not, that's why it's contrary to fact, we would be happy. So that's the formula for a contrary to fact or contrafactual condition. If blank were blanking, then blank would be, okay? So if Paul were here, we would be happy. Now, I will tell you right now, Collins doesn't do this because we don't, he hasn't presented you with the proof perfect subjunctive, but the past contrary to fact conditions use a pluperfect subjunctive in each clause with the isse infix. We'll get to that. It'll come up soon, but I'm just telling you now because you do know all the forms of the subjunctive verbs. The contrary to fact pastime condition um, is, is uh, used with two pluperfect subjunctives. So, for instance, if Paul had been here, we would have been happy. You see that? That's in pastime. So if Paul were here right now, we would be happy. If Paul had been here yesterday, we would have been happy. We would have been happy. That's the past contrary to fact using two pluperfect subjunctives. Okay, and that would have been fuiset and fuesemus. So fuesemus. So we'll get to that past contrary to fact condition. But for now, uh, your sentences, your practices. Practice sentences will show you only present contrafactual or contrary to fact conditions. Well, that's not very hard, but you now know all of the basic Latin conditional formulas. There you have it. Okay, and now for the final point of grammar in this chapter, which in fact causes students a lot of headaches. I don't exactly know why, I guess it's because these two things sound alike in English, but these, these two formations or grammatical structures always cause my students headaches and troubles. They're not that difficult if you think about them in a slow and logical way, which we will try to do right now. And these constructions are called gerunds and gerundives. Now, I don't prefer the way Collins pref uh, presents this because he presents gerundives first and then gerunds. The reason he does that is you have already encountered the gerundive form. You may remember when we taught you the participles in Latin. Remember, we had a present, or just for review, we had a present active participle but no present passive participle. We had a perfect passive participle, but no perfect active. And then we had a, a active and a passive future participle. And the future passive participle in Latin ended in the suffix endus, endus a uh, um. And you might remember that we used that future passive participle plus a verb to be, the future passive participle, for instance, laudandus a um, from laudo, laudare, laudavi, laudatus, we add the n-d-u-s after the, after the uh, perfect stem, or the uh, participial stem, laudatus, take the, the uh, 
TUS often we have laudandus, or actually from the present stem we should form that laudo laudare, drop the R-E, ad endus aum. Laudandus aum. And you might remember that when we use that, uh, when we use that with the verb to be, it shows obligation or necessity, and it is called the passive paraphrastic conjugation. So, for instance, remember, we might say, Deus laudandus est mihi. God ought to be praised by me. Okay, so that thus far is how we've encountered the perfect, uh, the future passive participle, endus a um. Remember, we talked about agenda, things to be done. Now, before we go any further, I want you to think about this concept. Let's think about what, uh, forget about a gerunda for now, and let's go to a gerund. What is a gerund? A gerund uh, in any language, and in, we have them in English, a gerund is a verbal noun. Now, a gerund is a verbal noun. It is a verb that we make into a noun, mostly in English by adding ing. So we can say, um, uh, he was talking, verb, or we can make it a noun. Talking in class is prohibited. Talking becomes a noun, right? And in English, we tend to form it by adding an ing. Now remember, we also have participles in Latin and participles in English, and we form present participles in the same way. And we, but participles are not verbal nouns. What are they? They are verbal adjectives, and they must agree in number, gender, and case with the nouns they modify. Okay, so let's go back to the gerund. If we want to use a verb and turn it into a noun in Latin, we use what's called the, ger the gerund form, which is the neuter, same as the neuter form of the gerundive or the future passive participle in the four oblique cases. What do I mean by oblique cases? I mean the cases that slant down from the nominative. So the four oblique cases in Latin are genitive, dative, accusative, and ablative. Okay? So we take the neuter form of the gerundive, and it becomes a gerund only in the singular and in the four cases, genitive, dative, ablative, genitive, dative, accusative, ablative. So if you take a look, I want you to uh, take a look on page 206, he shows you there at the top of the page the four cases of the gerund, the verbal noun, orandi, orando, orandum, orando. There is no nominative. Now, what if Latin wants to use a gerund in the nominative? Like we say, uh, here's a good example, a famous quote, to Er or er is human. Erring is human. Making a mistake is human. We want to take the verb er or er and change it 
into a noun. What Latin does in the nominative is it uses the infinitive as the nominative gerund. Therefore, in Latin, to err is human. You probably have heard this expression, errare humanum est. Errare, ero, errare in Latin, to wander, to go astray, to err, to err. Errare, infinitive, humanum est. Notice it's neuter, humanum est. To err is human. So that's how Latin uses uh, the nominative gerund. It uses the infinitive. And if you look in the box there under the notes, Collins tells you, the above is merely illustrative. Nearly every verb has a gerund. The gerund makes up for the lack of nominative by using the infinitive. That's just what I told you. Look at the example he gives. Orare est bonum. To pray is good. But there will be other times where you will want to use a verbal noun or a gerund in the oblique or the other four cases. Let me give you an example. Um, I can say in Latin, hoc dixit, he said this, and then I want to say about reading books. He was talking, he talked about reading books. He said this about reading books. Well, Dixit Hoke, or Hoke Dixit, he said this about. Now, what do we say about in Latin? Day, and day takes the ablative. And so we would use the gerund for reading from lego, legere, to read legendo, legendo. Hoke Dixit de legendo about reading. He said this about reading. But notice in my sense, I also, because a gerund is a verbal noun, it has characteristics of a verb. So gerunds can take objects. So in my practice sentence there, he said this about or concerning reading books. We would say, hoc dixit, he said this, de, Legendo, about reading, notice in the ablative, because day takes the ablative, but then we would have a direct object of legendo. Libros. Hoc dixit de legendo libros. <coughs> he said this about reading books. Now, I hope you're following that. Let's take a look at another example. In the middle of the page there, um, the second example that Collins gives in Latin, um, manducando vivimus. Vivimus is the verb. We live, how do we live? By means of eating. If we don't eat, we die, right? So manducando, look at manduco, manducare. We form the gerund, manducandi, manducando, mandicandum, mandicando. But here we need the ablative. We live by eating, manducando. Now, take that same sentence, and we could add an object uh, to eating. It might not make as much sense. Oh, yeah, sure, well, let's do this one. We live, vivimus, manducando cibum. We live by eating food. Manducando cibum. See how that works? Manducando is the gerund in the ablative because it's an ablative of means. How do we live? By means of eating. 
but we're eating food. So chibum goes in the accusative as the object of mandukando because it's a verbal noun. And remember, just like participles, which are verbal adjectives, participles have adjectival functions, but they also have verbal functions. Gerunds have noun functions, but they also have verb functions because they are verbal nouns. So, vivimus manducando, manducando vivimus, or we could say manducando chibum, by eating food, vivimus, we live. Now, that, in a nutshell, is the use of the gerund. And the gerund will be only the singular, neuter, genitive, dative, accusative, and ablative forms, okay? That is the gerund. And as you see on page 206 at the top, when he gives you the example of Rondi, of praying, or Rondo for or to praying, or random praying, or Rondo by, within, so on, any use of the ablative by praying. Those are gerunds, and they only have those four cases. Now, let's talk about what happens when we move into the realm of gerundives. Now, Latin could go on through its entire life and existence by using the gerund just in the way that I've given you the example, hoc dixit de uh, legendo libros, he, he said this about reading books, or better yet, in your book, uh, adding the chibum to manducando, manducando chibum vivimus, we live by eating food. Latin could have done that perfectly, and it does that, and that's the way it uses the gerund. But there is an idiomatic usage when you have such a gerund phrase, <coughs> excuse me, that Latin likes to use instead of the gerund and an object. What it likes to do idiomatically is use the gerundive instead. And how does it do that? Here's how it does it. Pay close attention. It takes the word that would be the object of the gerund. In our sample sentence, manducando chibum, chibum, U-M, is the accusative of food, chibus, right? It's the object of manducando. When using the gerundive form of this idiom, it takes the chibum and puts it in the case that the gerund would be in, which is ablative. So chibo. And then the gerundive modifies it in number, gender, and case because the gerundive, the gerundive is not a gerund. It's a gerundive. It's a verbal adjective, right? Those two expressions mean exactly the same thing in Latin. So if I said, manducando chibum vivimus, we live by eating food, I could also say, changing that to a gerundive, manducando chibo vivimus, by eating food we live. Now, that looks, you say, well, that, that, that looks the same, but let's take a look at my earlier sentence that I gave you, which is not in the book, he said this concerning or about reading books. 
So when I used the gerund form of that phrase, I said, hoc dixit, he said this, de, about, legendo, about reading, and then libros, L-I-B-R-O-S, accusative plural, as the object of legendo. If I want to change that to use a gerundive instead of a gerund, I take the word books, libros, which is the object of the gerund, and I put it in the case that the gerund would be in, which is what? Ablative, day. But notice books is plural. So the ablative of books, plural, is libris, I-S. Then I make my gerundive modify it in number gendering case, and it becomes legendis, plural. That's a gerundive. It's not a gerund. It's a gerundive. And the sentence in Latin looks like this. Hoc dixit de libris legendis. He said this about reading books. Both those forms, using either the gerund or the gerundive phrase, are acceptable and good Latin but Latin tends to prefer the gerundive use. I don't know exactly why. It's kind of neater, sounds better. <clears throat> but at any rate, it does tend to use that. Either one would be correct. So let me repeat those two sentences. Hoc dixit, he said this, de legendo libros, about reading books, gerund. Hoc dixit, de libris legendis, he said this about reading books, gerundive phrase. I hope that makes sense. So, if you remember that the gerund as a verbal noun only has the four oblique cases, genitive, dative, accusative, ablative, singular, and in the neuter, and, and it's a verbal noun, and you remember that the gerundive is... Uh, has all the forms in singular and plural because it's an adjective, that will help you. It's also important to note, which is strange, that even though the, ger the gerund looks like, just like the neuter singular of the gerundive, it's translated actively, right? It's not the future passive participle anymore. It's a gerund. So we say, we do this, we live by eating. Not by being eaten, but by eating, right? So it's active. Okay, now, um, that is always confusing to students. And I'm not exactly sure why. I hope I've explained it carefully. But in order to illustrate it a little bit further, I want you to turn to page 209. And the exercises, Roman numeral number two at the top of the page, and I want you to see uh, a couple examples. Um, let's take a look at sentences two and three. Legendo noshimus multo. Okay, so there we have noshimus. We know or we learn multa, many things. Multa, that's the object. How do we learn them? Legendo, by reading. Now there's a plain, simple gerund. Notice it doesn't have any object. 
and it's just standing out there as a gerund by reading. From reading, by reading, we learn many, many things. Now take a look at three. It's a variation on the sense. Noshimus multa. We know we learn many things. Libris legendis. That's the phrase I used in my example. By reading books. Now, that is a gerundive phrase. Notice it's in the plural. It's in the plural ablative. There is no plural in the gerund. It's a gerundive. But you translate it by reading books the same way. Now, you could have said in sentence two, legendo libros, OS accusative, noshimus multa. And that would say, by reading books, legendo libros, noshimus multa. We know or we learn many things. It would mean exactly the same thing as libris legendis, noshimus multa. By reading books, we learn, we, we know many things. So, you see how those two function? You can use a gerund with an accusative, or you can use a gerundive modifying the word that would have been the object of the gerund, but in its proper case. Let's take a look to illustrate that one more time. Let's take a look at sentences six and seven in the exercises. Pro viro maledicendo. Jesus eum benedixit. Okay, so the main sentence, Jesus eum benedixit. I think that's pretty clear, right? Jesus blessed him. Pro here. Pro in, in, in place of or in return for, I think, best here. Pro plus the ablative. Now take a look at seven first. Number seven. Pro Virum maledicendo, Jesus eum benedixit. In place of bad-mouthing or cursing Viru, the man, Jesus blessed him. Being Jesus, he's very charitable, of course. So Jesus blessed the man in return for, or in place of, cursing the man. Notice what we have there is a gerund, maledicendo. It's singular. It's in the ablative because pro takes the ablative. Virum is the object of the gerund, isn't it? In place of cursing the man, instead of cursing the man, Jesus blessed him. Now notice sentence six. The same sentence, but there we turn it into a gerundive. We take the virum, which would be or is the object of the gerund in sentence 7. We put it in the case that the gerund would be in, which is ablative. And then we make maledicendus aum, the gerundive, modify man in number, gender, and case. Pro viro maledicendo. So those two sentences, six and seven, are translated exactly the same. In six, we have a gerundive. In seven, we have a gerund. I hope you see the difference. As I said, either one is absolutely correct in Latin. Latin will use both, but 
when there is an object to a gerund, Latin prefers, I suppose if we took a poll, we'd see that the majority of the time, Latin prefers the gerundive phrase. So it would prefer six here, pro viro maledicendo, in, in return for, uh, instead of uh, cursing the man, Jesus blessed him. Okay, so um, that is how gerunds and gerundives work. Now, it's important for you to know that gerunds and gerundives have a couple idiomatic expressions, and they are extremely important in Latin. Collins sort of mentions this in a kind of footnote, but it's very important. On page 205, right at the end of the section on gerundives, he has that note there. Note that in the last two examples, odd plus the gerundive and the gerundive plus causa are equivalent to purpose clauses, a construction to which the future passive participle quite naturally lends itself. Don't worry about all that. In other words, what the thing to worry about is odd, A-D, meaning usually to or toward, odd plus the accusative in the gerund or gerundive phrase means in order to or for the purpose of. It's like a purpose clause. And another one is likewise the word causa with a long mark in the ablative plus a preceding genitive means for the sake of. Again, like a purpose clause. Take a look at those examples of gerundives in 129. Petro era desiderium pali videndi. To Peter, in the dative, there was a desire. Peter had a desire. That's a dative of possession, right? Peter had a desire, or there was a desire to Peter of seeing Paul. Paolo, Pauli videndi, of seeing Paul. That's a gerundive phrase. Latin could have put that in a gerund and used it this way. Petro era desiderium videndi paulum, U-M as an accusative, and that would be a gerund. There was a desire to Peter, or Peter had the desire of seeing a paulum, accusative, a gerund plus the accusative. But here we put Pauli in the genitive because that's the, the case that the gerund would be in and we make videndi modify it. So that's a gerundive phrase. Now take a look at the next example. And here's the example of that idiomatic use of odd plus the gerund or gerundive. Ioannis venit ad populum baptizandum. John came in order to or for the purpose of or to baptize people. As he points out, he came for the people to be baptized. This is a idiomatic usage of the gerund or gerundive, and it will take odd plus the accusative. The same thing can be said for the use of the word causa, with a long mark in the ablative, with a preceding genitive. Notice, Ioannis venit populi baptizandi causa. John came, venit, causa, for the sake of, and the genitive precedes it, for the sake of baptizing people. He came to baptize people. 
or he came for the sake of baptizing people. Now, just to give you another drill, in that sense, he could have said, Ioannis venit populum baptizandi causa. Then we would have a gerund and not a gerundive phrase. John came causa for the sake of baptizandi populum, baptizing people. But in this particular instance, Latin likes to use the gerundive more than the gerund. Therefore, populi goes in the uh, uh, genitive, and baptizandi modifies it. Okay, we have, we use the gerund in work. Uh, we work it when we take a phrase like one that we know in English. What is his modus operandi? What is his mode of working or operation? Modus operandi. There is your genitive gerund, the mode of working, right? The mode of operation. Now, if, uh, if you take a look um, at uh, number, go back to page 209 and take a look at um, number one in the practice, uh, ad orationem finiendam populus dicunt amen. The people say amen, ad orationem finiendam, in order to finish the prayer. Ad plus the accusative of the gerund or gerundive shows purpose, for the purpose of ending the prayer. And notice, orationem finiendam. I could ask you, is finiendam a gerund or a gerundive? And you would say to me, oh, Dr. B, it's a gerundive. And you would be right. Why? Because notice, finiendam is feminine, orationem is feminine. If we wanted to use the gerund, remember the gerund only has four cases and it's neuter, the ending on finiendam would be finiendum. Orationum would be in the same case because it happens to be accusative here. So you could have put a gerund, ad orationem finiendum, for the ending the prayer, in order to end the prayer, the people say amen. But here again, Latin likes to use the gerundive. Um, let's take a look at... Uh, um, Number 10, stellam videndo reges exultaverunt. Okay, so our main verb is exultaverunt, right? Uh, and the, the subject is reges. The kings rejoice, these must be the wise men, by seeing videndo stellam, the star. That, is that a gerund or a gerunda phrase? Well, if you said gerund, you would be correct. Because videndo is the ablative, by seeing or when seeing, by seeing, in seeing. And then it takes the accusative stellam. By seeing the star or in seeing the star, the kings exalted or rejoiced. You could change that again into a gerundive. And how would you do that? You would look at stellam and you say that needs to go in the case of the gerund, what the gerund would be, which is ablative. Stella, with a long mark. But then, videndo, which is a gerund, 
would need to be changed into a gerundive, which is an adjective, a participle, and it would be videnda, modifying stella. Stella videnda rages exultaverant. With the star, by seeing the star, by sighting the star, the kings exalted or rejoiced, right? So uh, there you have the presentation of gerunds and gerundives. And those are the things that are tricky in this, in this uh, chapter. They are important. They occur very often in Latin. And remember, you can say the same thing either way using a gerund or gerundive in those phrases, but Latin prefers the gerundive phrase. I think, when, and those phrases uh, are particularly, there are idiomatic uses with odd plus the accusative to show purpose or causa plus a preceding uh, genitive to show uh, purpose. Take a look one more time at number five in the exercises, Roman numeral two. Jesus exit apostolos vocandi causa. Um, Jesus exit, he went forth, right? There's the main verb. Jesus went out, he went forth. Apostolos vocandi causa. There's causa plus the uh, preceding genitive. For the sake of calling apostles. For the sake of calling apostles. In order to call apostles, Jesus went forth. Okay, now, is vocandi a gerund or a gerundive? If I asked you that on your test, I hope you would tell me it is a gerund. It is one of the four oblique cases. It is the genitive because of causa, for the sake of or for the purpose of calling. And apostolos is its accusative. Now, if we wanted to change it into a gerundive, what would be our procedure? We would say vocandi is the gerund, it's in the genitive. So we must change opostolos, which is the object of the gerund, into that case. And notice apostolos is plural, so we need the plural genitive, opostolorum, opostolorum, right? And then we need to make the gerund into a gerundive and modify opostolorum. So it would be vocandorum. Isn't that, that is a nice sound, though. Latin loves that sound. I think that's why they, they like the gerundives. Jesus exit apostolorum vocandorum causa. For the sake of calling apostles. That's a gerundive phrase. Apostolorum vocandorum causa. Jesus exit. Jesus went forth. So we have either causa with the preceding genitive, apostolos vocandi with a gerund for the sake of calling apostles, where apostles is the accusative following vocandi, a gerund, or we can turn that into a gerundive phrase. They mean exactly the same thing. Apostolorum vocandorum causa for the sake of calling apostles. So that gives you a good, I hope that gives you a good explanation of gerunds and gerundus, and as we encounter them in our sentences, I'll be sure to review all of this and point things out. And one more thing before we call it a day, let's take a look at the drills uh, on page 208. There are a couple uh, contrafactual conditional sentences 
uh, showing you how they are used. Look at number one, si pastor malus oves tu eretur amiterentur. Notice the formula for a contrary to fact condition in present time is two imperfect subjunctives. So you have tu eretur and amiterentur. If, the, if a wicked or bad shepherd guards the sheep, they would be lost. If a wicked shepherd or a bad shepherd were, were guarding the sheep, they would be lost. Okay, So it's a contrary to fact condition. But if a wicked shepherd were guarding, but it's, he's not a wicked shepherd. He's a good shepherd, right? So that's why it's contrary to fact. Uh, take a look at two. Si rex mortarator. Familia regrederetur. If the king were dead, the family would return. But the king is not dead. Uh, he must be talking about Herod. He has to wait. Remember, Joseph and Mary have to wait until the king dies because he's after the baby Jesus. Uh, look at number four. Si in Christum crederes, nunc letareris. If you believed in Christ, if you were believing in Christ, you would now be happy. But contrary to fact, unfortunately, you're not now believing in Christ. Therefore, you're not happy. If you were believing or trusting in Christ, you would be happy. So that's the contrary to fact or contrafactual condition, present time, two imperfect subjunctives, one in each clause. The, the contrary to fact past time will use pluperfect subjunctives, one in each clause. Okay. So that is our lesson. I hope I've explained it carefully and clearly to you. If you have any questions, as always, don't hesitate to write me on email at may, M-A-Y, at stoloff, S-T-O-L-A-F, dot E-D-U. And I will be happy to answer your questions. Uh, study your vocabulary on page 206, 207. Notice there are several uh, compounded verbs from pono, which is a very important verb, pono, ponore, posui, positus, to place. You have de pono, im pono, pro pono, re pono, many, many uh, compounded verbs uh, from the root pono to place. Same with capio, an important verb, um, and uh, several other uh, good words there. Uh, for homework, I would like you to do the odd-numbered sentences in the exercises on page 209, 210, and 211. He's uh, increased the number of uh, sentences, so we'll have a hefty amount to do. Exercises, odd-numbered exercises for your homework. And then for the reading, I'd like you to do the preface for the nativity. We will go over that. That's the preface for the nativity. Uh, there is a reading from John's Gospel, but I think most of us probably know that almost by heart. So I think it would be uh, more beneficial for us to read the preface for the Nativity. So one more time, for the exercises, the odd-numbered sentences under exercises, Roman numeral one, and then under readings, the preface for the Nativity. Um, I hope that this has been clear and helpful. I'm glad to be back at it again. And we will continue with our Latin lessons right through the end of uh, Latin grammar. I want you to have a good day and a great week. We'll be checking in again with you sometime midweek with the answers to your exercises, your homework, uh, going over them carefully. 
Uh, have a great week, and God bless. Bye-bye.